From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Chris Sly. Now, if you're like me, you may have heard of Chris Sly the first time on American Idol years ago. So, in full disclosure, which I made to Chris, I've only seen one season of this show, and um, it happened to be the one that Chris was on. My friend Andy Gullihorn at the time had organized this American Idol fantasy league, uh, and there was an elaborate voting system, and uh, my wife and I got really into this, and we would watch the episodes, and then uh, you'd log on to this website and vote. Uh, there was, it was so fun. I don't remember who won our league. I don't remember who won that season of American Idol, but I do remember Chris Sly. I had a great voice, super interesting dude, and uh, and then the show ended, and yeah, you know, you move on. Um, but a few years later, Chris and I were at a couple different events together, and uh, we didn't like hang, but I, I you know, met him. And somewhere at that point, I guess we became Facebook friends, but had never probably even really talked. But then like a year ago, you know how Facebook sometimes just decides like, hey, you want to hear from this person. And it's like some random person you don't even know, but you became friends with at one point years ago. Um, Well, it started showing me a lot of Chris's posts and they were super interesting. And he's going to talk about this a little bit. So I feel like it's okay to say here, um, uh, Chris had kind of built a reputation after American Idol um, that was maybe not what he wanted. And uh, that was the reputation that I had sort of gleaned. So Chris would write these big, long kind of opinion pieces, and they were really thoughtful and wise and still with very strong opinions. But uh, I realized that the reputation that Chris had built and the person that this guy was was not the same person. And Chris seemed to be aware of that. And that made me want to hang out and talk and get to know this guy. And so I reached out on Facebook and said, hey, man, uh, I think you're really fascinating and I'd love to hang out. And so he came over to the art house. We had a very long, uh, wonderful conversation and then went and got pizza and kept talking. Uh, Actually, Chris came over a couple months ago and I was hoping to put this episode out earlier Uh, But we talked so long, there was a lot to edit to get it to sort of a manageable size, and that just took a lot longer than uh, I thought it would. So uh, this is coming out a little later, but listening back through it, man, I loved getting to hang with Chris, and um, man, we just covered so much ground. And you know, sometimes the pivot is, I had this job, and now I have this job. Sometimes it's a health thing, sometimes it's a family thing, sometimes in the case of my friend Chris, uh, it's that you are not the person that you used to be. And that is maybe the most important pivot of all. And I uh, was so thankful uh, to start a friendship with Chris uh, during this. And um, I know you're going to love it. I also want to let you know that Chris has a new album out uh, at chrissly.org. That's S-L-I-G-H. And it's great. A cool, vibey, interesting worship record, and I think you'll really love it. Um, And if you go on his website, you can read a lot of his thoughts, and uh, yeah, it's worth diving in to get to know this guy. Um, All right, so that's what you need to know uh, to hear this conversation with my new friend, Chris Sly. (laughs) 
So I have a couple sponsors for this podcast, and what I love about this is not only do they help me bring this podcast to you, but they're things I really, really believe in. So I want to tell you about them again. If you've skipped past this before, don't now. We've got two sponsors for this season, globalcounselingnetwork.com. These are accredited, world-class counselors uh, who work virtually. So if you're in a place that you don't have access to good counseling and you know you need someone to walk with you uh, through the changes of life, trauma, stress, anxiety, relationship difficulties, uh, health issues, uh, spiritual issues, whatever it is, I want you to know that there are people out there who would love to help. And uh, no one needs to walk through this alone. And if you don't have somebody in your immediate community who can be that for you right now, there are people who would love to help. Globalcounselingnetwork.com. You really need to check that out. Also, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. And here's the deal. If you're in Nashville, they have lots of events. We host some of them here at the Art House, and they're wonderful and you should check them out. If you are not in Nashville, there are still tons of great things uh, that you can find on their website. Uh, seminars that you can listen to, writings, tons of resources to think through where does our faith and our work intersect. This is a valuable resource uh, for many in my community, and I think for you too, and so I don't want you to miss this. So please go check out Nashville Institute for Faith and Work at nifw.org. I had trained as a classical singer. And really? so like in college I was a voice performance major, studied classical music. My I had gotten accepted into Juilliard to go get my wow. masters and then got kicked out of my college with seven credits left to graduate for going to a for him concert. I went to Bob Jones University. Whoa. Yeah. Dude. Yes. There's so much there. So much there. <laughs> Got kicked out with seven credits left to graduate, and so that derailed my plans to go to Juilliard. And about the same time, probably six months before that happened, I had been at Carpenter Cellar and had seen this guy named Bebo Norman yeah. singing, and I and it was life-changing for me. I remember when he played The Hammer Holds, and I was like, that is what I want to do with my life. When he gets to that turn where he lets you know like what the real story is in that song, is... Like, I mean, I look back at it now and it's kind of cheesy. Like, I would never write a song like that now. But in 2000, that was like mind-blowingly good. Yeah. Like, mind-blowingly good. And I remember just going like, okay, that is that is what I'm going to do with my life. And so I went out and bought a guitar, uh, an epiphany uh, guitar, <laughs> which is how I thought you pronounce Epiphone. <laughs> and the action was probably about an inch and a half off at the, you know, at the base of the neck, you know. And my fingers just bled, and it was horrible. But I ended up writing well, – I mean, I probably wrote 200 songs with that guitar before yeah. I moved up to my next you know, guitar. And, um, and so from – when I got kicked out in December of 2000, um, I kind of was like, well, I'm not going to Juilliard now because there's no way for me to – like if nothing else, there's – like if I go to another college, it's going to make me have to have tons of extra credits. Yeah. So I can't go to Juilliard. What am I going to do now? It seems like the the opera slash musical theater thing is probably not going to happen for me. Mm. Um, and was that kind of the goal for you? Yeah, opera, that was like the original theater? goal. Like I was an actor. Um, I actually thought I was going to be an actor more than anything else. Was What kind of actor? Um, like 
I mean, I was funny, but more classical. You know, I studied the Stanislavski method and did that whole wow. sort of thing. So like stage acting. Stage acting. You know, I did some, you know, short film kind of stuff back in college, back when you still actually had to use film to yeah. make, you know, make this stuff. And um, and so, yeah, like I thought that it was going to be uh, kind of a turning point in college was – I was not a very good singer. I actually thought I, I went to college thinking that I was going to be a lawyer. And my freshman year, um, I was singing a Michael English song, walking down the hallway, just humming a Michael English song. And that's not allowed, obviously. And so this guy turns around and chases me down and he goes, hey, were you just singing a Michael English song? And I was like, uh, no, of course not. And, uh, and he goes, no, I thought it was good. I'm starting the singing group. Do you want to come and try out for the singing group? And I was like, I mean, I guess I've never really sung before and, and I was on the basketball team. So like, you know, like that was like my goal was I actually thought I was going to be, uh, you know, a professional basketball player, like you, which you would obviously know by my svelte figure now. Um, <laughs> For the record, I had the same <laughs> dream. <laughs> like, I, like, in fact, I wrote this song. One of the first songs I ever wrote was a song called Famous that everybody loved. But um, but like my whole the whole thing, I forget the lyric exactly, but it basically was like. Um, I used to think, you know, I just want to be famous. I just want you to know my name, um, you know. And so the second verse was talking about how when I was a kid, I wanted to be a basketball player, and I just knew if I could get to six foot three, that I was going to make it to the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got stuck at six foot tall, and, <laughs> and so it didn't work out for me. So I, I tried out for the singing group and fell in love with music and started writing songs for this group and. Um, and it, and it was kind of this turning point. So I changed my major to music, had never taken a voice lesson in my life. You talk about a pivot, like had never taken a voice lesson in my life. I go to Bob Jones university, which has a conservatory level yeah. music school. They're known for really amazing, uh, classical music and classical art. Too. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're unbelievably good at art and, uh, at fine arts. And so I go in and I walk in. I have no clue what I'm doing, and I and I just say I want to be a music major. And they're like, "Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> do you play an instrument?" And I'm like, "Well, no." And they're like, "Do you sing?" And I was like, "Yeah, I think I can sing a little bit." And so they're like, "Okay. So, would you be a voice major?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And so I'm looking at the really what I wanted to do is I wanted to learn how to write songs, and I wanted to learn how to uh, like write strings, like orchestrate. Yeah. So I looked at the uh, I looked at the syllabus and uh, and the cl- the major that gave me the most ability to take all the classes that I wanted to take was a voice performance major. They're like, oh, voice performance is really hard. You should not do that. <laughs> and, and so I was like. Uh, I think I'll be okay. And they're like, but no, it is seriously. easily transferable to other life skills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they're like, yeah, but you know, so they're telling me all the requirements, you know, if you don't pass your sophomore platform, you have to change your major. If you fail your junior platform, you have to change your major. Nobody wow, wants that's to change intense. Your, you know, and I'm like, um, you know, weighing the cost in my head. And overconfident Chris is just like, well, of course I'll be able to do that because I'm amazing. <laughs> and, and so I I just take my major to voice performance. Having never taken a voice lesson, I think I'm a bass. And I walk into my first voice lesson and my, and my teacher in the first hour says, well, first of all, you're not a bass. You're a tenor and you're a horrible singer and you're going to have to learn how to re-sing 
completely everything that you've ever learned. And so my first two years in college, man, I was barely scraping by. And then somehow between my sophomore and junior year, something happened where it's like everything finally clicked. And I went from being like kind of a mid-level sort of singer in the program to being the best male singer in this conservatory level program. Mm. And um, and so I got, it was kind of this turning point where I got the part in the opera, which was like a big deal at Bob Jones. They mm. do like 20 performances, sold out performances in a theater of 3,000 of the of opera every year. They fly down like Met singers, like singers from the Met to come and be a part of this. It's a it's a huge, huge deal to get a put mate to get a part or an understudy. And so I got a part and an understudy in Aida, which is Verdi's uh, yeah. opera. And um and so th- like the soprano who was from the Met was so blown away by me that she then got me in at Juilliard, where she had graduated from, got me in. I got as much of a scho- as a scholarship as they give. They don't really give much in, in the way of scholarships, but as much as a, of a free ride as you can get if I wanted to get my master's there. So, like, you know, as a 21-year-old kid, I, like, go up to New York, and I'm doing the subways for the first time and, like, auditioning and doing this whole thing. And, and it was super scary, but, of course – and then I won Nats that year, which is, like, the National Association of Teachers Singing. Like, literally oh, wow. overnight went from being not a good singer to suddenly, just, like, winning, <laughs> like, awards and stuff. It was super – it messed with my mind. Yeah. Like, um and so then when I get kicked out, all this changes, like, you know, and... Were you like a rebel? Like, you get, you say, well, I get kicked out. I mean, yes, for Bob Jones standards, yes, I yeah. was a rebel, you know, because I was asking the questions of like, so wait, so you're saying that the two and the four to accent that is more sinful than accenting the one and the three. And those are things that... Oh, that's a real thing. And they would be like, well, of course, yes, it's a separation issue. Okay. I want you to say that out loud and then process what you're saying as you say it because it just sounds stupid. There's no way that one note is one beat is more sinful. Like, how have you come to this conclusion? They've come up with all these reasons. Really, really what it comes down to when at an emotional level in the 1950s. 1940s and 50s, when fundamentalism is kind of splintering, like the Billy Graham, because Billy Graham went to Bob Jones, got kicked out. So Billy Graham is in the process of like, you know, starting to go a different direction. Fuller Seminary is like this big thing. Bob Jones was kind of in the center of this. They splinter away from um, the where fundamentalism kind of splinters, and you have what becomes evangelicals, and then fundamentalism, which kind of keeps the the line, so to speak. They keep in their minds what are the fundamentals of the faith. In fundamentalism, what they do is they elevate um, separation to a doctrine. Separation. Instead. Separation would be like I am separate from the world. I'm, you know, we don't want to do anything that is quote unquote worldly. So as around the same time in the fifties is when Elvis and all this rock music is starting to come. And at an emotional level, I think that what happened in, in a lot of parents is they start to go like, well, I don't want my parent, I don't want my kids to uh, be of the world because that's bad. I don't want them to be rebellious because rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. So I want to keep my children as sheltered and away from this stuff as possible. So how do I, I don't want them acting like Elvis. So it's probably the music that's the problem. So you've come to a conclusion and then you find support for the conclusion instead of coming to the conclusion from a logical way, which is I figure out what scripture is trying to say. 
And eventually I reach the place where I come to this conclusion because of the journey that has taken me here. Um, legitimately, as you look back, I can't find any of that journey. It's literally conclusion supporting facts for the conclusion. And so as a college student, I'm just going like I, I have a relatively high intelligence level. I'm pretty logical. I don't just accept things as they come. And I'm asking the questions of, I want to believe this. I'm a 19, 20-year-old kid going, I want to believe this. Please tell me why I should believe this. I can't just believe it because you say it. Give me the reasons why this is true. And they would just look at me and just be like, because it's true. Really fundamentalism in general, and I think that we're actually seeing a return to that sort of fundamentalism, the the asking of questions, like the basic curiosity that we see in, say, Jesus, where every single time that he's asked, almost every time in scripture where he's asked a question, he responds with a question. Everything is curiosity. Hmm. But in fundamentalism, we teach people that curiosity is is bad. Asking questions about what a leader does is uh, having an independent spirit, or having you know, you by asking questions that you are somehow disrespecting what you know what the the authority of whatever. And authority is like a big thing yeah. in any sort of fundamentalism. And so it's coming back and going like, well, wait a second. Like, if Jesus was curious, why would I not be curious? I constantly want to be asking questions and understanding more about the world. And so I don't think that I was a rebel by any stretch of like realistic thinking. I want to look at the Bible and then come up with my conclusions mm -hmm. um, based upon what actually is said in the scripture. And so I couldn't figure out how, you know, any sort of rock music yeah. was worse than the other kind of music. Um, I'd love to tell you why some rock music is worse than other <laughs> rock music, but not on those standards. <laughs> Yeah, I spent a lot of my time thinking about that. <laughs> well, I think that why when you is, come down why, to yeah. preference. Yeah, why is the, like, why are the killers better than Creed? Like there's an answer. Yes, there is an answer. Oh. And and I would disagree with you there because Creed is the greatest band to ever live. So I do want to get um, Scott on this interview <laughs> on this podcast, so I'm gonna cut that little part. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, so I got I went to this concert and it was before the semester started. And we snuck backstage and we took pictures with like all the For Him guys. In fact, I had this great Andy Chrisman and Mark Harris and I have gotten to be friends down through the years, the guys from For Him. And, um, and I have this picture of like me with everybody in For Him, all the all, Jeremy Diebler, all the guys from FFH. We literally just walked backstage by pretending we knew what we were doing. Like as we it's walked by, it's shocking how often that works. <laughs> yeah, we like walk. We're twenty year old, twenty two year old kids. Me and my best friend, and we're just like, hey man, to the security guard, and we just walked back in the back and like hung out with For Him for like an hour and a half. It was like the greatest night of my life to that point. I was a virgin still. So, you know, that at that point, the, you know, the greatest night of my life. Yeah, it's was, as good as it gets. Yeah. Right there, yeah. And so, uh, and I had tons of pictures. So as we're driving back, I tell my, my best friend, I was like, you cannot show these pictures to anyone because this will get us kicked out of college. And, you know, this is before the internet really was a thing. This is 1999 yeah. at that point. They weren't, you weren't posting this stuff on Instagram. No, but there's also no way to prove that it was before the semester started. Like if, if they see oh, pictures- Oh, so it had to be during the school- Correct. Like they can only kick you wow. out. So like, um, you know, but to be fair, I had been to probably 30 concerts that semester. So mm -hmm. when they got called in and they're like, we hear you went to a concert. I'm like, yeah, yes. <laughs> like, 
And so then when they end up bringing up the one that was like before the semester, I'm like, oh, that actually was before the semester. Well, prove it. I don't know how to prove that. Like, I didn't know you could call a booking agent and like get, you know, I don't know any of these things. I'm like a dumb college kid. And so, uh, so yeah, I got kicked out for going to this, you know, to this concert and it was. Wow. So what does your, what does your family think when you get kicked out of your senior year? Yeah. Um, well, it, it was exacerbated by the fact that my parents are missionaries and they had taken their furlough that year in order to see my senior recital that I ended up not doing because oh. <laughs> so not good, Andrew, not That's good. Brutal. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was not the, uh, most happy and peaceful time in the Sly family household at that point. Um, my parents were obviously disappointed and, and also there's a lot of fear because again, fundamentalist missionaries, Rebellion is legitimately seen as a sin of of witchcraft within that sort of thing. We knew of people who had lost their entire ministries. Like, you know, a big thing in, in fundamentalism is they take that scripture that says that if a woman um, isn't married, um, that they have to live under their father's household until they're married. So, like, there are people who had been removed from ministry because their daughters had graduated college and taken job at a church because they didn't come home and live with their parents until they were married, like because that, so my parents have all. I was, of this. I was raised in the fundamentalist church, but uh, but it was not to that degree, not that hardcore. Yeah, no. um, you win. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was pretty insane. Like I mean, le- legitimately, my high school girlfriend. This is this is a true story. You can look it up. Um, Kansas City, Missouri. My high school girlfriend was a pastor's daughter. She had gotten in trouble. Um, I had actually broken up with her because she wanted to have sex with me. Now, I may be the only male that you ever hear say that she broke that he broke up, but I was a good kid who wanted to do the right thing. My girlfriend wanted to have sex with me. I said no, and I broke up with her because she kept pressuring me. And um, she ended up having relations with other guys in the school. It ended up being a huge scandal. Um, she ends up being basically like um, – I mean, almost jailed, like, at home. Like, she ended up being sent to a place for a year, and then she, when she came back, she was not allowed to leave the house without her parents. She's 23, 24, I think, by the time that they lifted the restrictions. And um, and so she ended up at 23 years old. Yeah, 23 years old, my senior year at Bob Jones. 23 years old, she gets a job, falls in love with a Southern Baptist boy. Good Christian. She's working at a Christian bookstore, falls in love with a Southern Baptist boy. She comes home and says, mom and dad, I think I'm going to move out and get my own place. Um, and, um, I fall in love with this guy. It's a Southern Baptist, which is against, you know, Southern Baptists are liberal in in my upbringing. And so two days later, the, um, the wife, the pastor's wife, her mother, um, killed Jenny, shot her. Nine times with a six-piece, like a six-shooter, shot her nine times, and then killed herself because she wrote in her diary that in order to save her husband's ministry, she could not let her daughter be rebellious and move out of the house. That's that's how crazy my childhood was. <laughs> oh my goodness! So it's I don't want to I don't want to keep talking about this necessarily, but it's <laughs> it's clear to say that that there's some baggage from. Oh, your upbringing that that bleeds into probably 
I'm guessing the next chapters of your life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, now I've had five years of therapy now I'm in still in, you know, Mm -hmm. in therapy, I'm still healing from not just my childhood, but you know, not just religion, but family and all the stuff that everybody goes through. You add religion on top of that and automatically it gets messy. How I made it as a mildly functioning human being coming out of the things that I've come out of is a is truly a testament to the grace of God because uh, like my parents' generation in that sort of fundamentalism they look back and they go, well, we did it because we were so scared that our kids were going to end up being of the world. And so we put all these restrictions and we tried to just make it easier for them to um, to live for Jesus. I look at my dad's generation and almost all the guys that he went to college with are still in ministry today. Like all the guys he went to Tennessee Temple with, he, you know, I, you go down through the list, there's just dozens and dozens and dozens of these guys that have lived lives of for Christ in ministry. I look at my college, you know, the guys that I went to Bob Jones with, and it's almost none of them. Hmm. And so by doing this, living in this reaction of fear, living ultimately in this place of agenda where I'm going to force my children to live in this way, not teach them to make right choices because they are figuring out how to make right choices, but they're making right choices because they're right choices, then ultimately what I'm doing is I'm actually serving my children up on a silver platter to say, world take them because yeah. that's ultimately what happens. Yeah. So I walk away from this and I immediately just go like about six months in, I'm at this church, this kind of a halfway house for Bob Jones students, jokingly is what we called it. Mm. Cause it's like a bunch of ex Bob Jones students. And literally all they do is talk about how horrible Bob Jones is. And I just remember having this like revelation where I was like, I don't want to live in reaction for the rest of my life to yeah. Bob Jones university. Who cares? Like, I just don't want to do this. And so I literally just shut off, like, that piece of my brain. Hmm. And I think I had to. It was a survival sort of thing at that point because I knew that – I knew at least in the back of my head that all this religious stuff was crap and I needed to figure out how to love Jesus for me. Uh, love Jesus according to what I saw in Scripture. Not because – the way I like to say it is I think that sometimes – Sometimes religion and faith is a is a birthright, and eventually you have to move from it being a birthright to it being a choice. And so for me at 23 years old, that's when it became the choice. Up until that point, it had been a birthright. It was – I went to church because my family went to church, and my dad was a missionary. And, you know, and that was back in the days when it was, you know, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night church. Uh, we usually got Mondays off, uh, at least in the evenings. And then Tuesday night was Bible study. Wednesday night was prayer meeting. Thursday night was soul winning. Friday night was Awanas. And Saturday night was uh, youth group. So I was literally at church six or seven days a week. And so it was a birthright. That was what I did as a, like, uh, when you read about, like, football families that, you know, like, yeah. the dad is a football coach. And playing football is kind of this birthright that they that they have they feel like kids have to like I remember reading that Tony Dungy story after his son committed suicide and just the heartbreak and I and I remember resonating with that going like that's how I felt about religion like how this kid seemed to feel about football is the way mm-hmm. that I felt about religion but at some point I had to come to the place where that um, where the um, I had to come to a place where the birthright became a choice. And so for me at 23 years old, it was like, am I just going to say, screw all this stuff 
and walk away from it because that legitimately was on the table for me. I was at a place where like I was mildly successful. I was a manager of a Domino's. So I mean like I'm making better money than a 23-year-old should be making. I think I made like 85 grand or something as a, you know, as a manager. I'm 23 years old making 85 grand. Yeah, that's you know? pretty good. Yeah. And uh you know so I'm making like really good money and I have, you know, girl girls that I'm dating. I have friends that are um, you know, that are not Christians for the first, you know, really for the first time in my life, at least without my parents overseeing those friendships. And I, so I think that there is legitimately a place where I could have gone, eh, I think this is not, this thing is not for me. Or this religion is not yeah. for me. And, but ultimately I just, I feel like, and both of my brothers have kind of walked away from Jesus. It's just not their thing. You know, my brother says he's my one brother who's the smartest person I know. He calls himself an apatheist. You know, he's like, there might be a God, but who cares? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so like, you know, uh, neither one of my brothers are necessarily, uh, following Jesus. So why, why did I choose this? I don't really know. Like, um, except for to explain that, like when I feel like God called me and, and I don't know that I ever had a choice. I legitimately don't know that I've ever had a choice to walk away from that. Mm. I'm not saying like Reformed theology. I'm saying from once I became a believer, once I truly believed, I've, I've definitely questioned whether or not God is good. I've definitely questioned whether or not God um, is on my side. I've definitely questioned whether or not God is for me or that he is good to me. But I've never questioned whether or not God is real that just has never been something that I've struggled with. Um, I mean, I think those other questions are really why people come to believe that God might not be real anyway, is because yeah. can God, is there, if, the, if God is not good or God is not uh, for me, then is it possible that he is even, that he even exists? Um, but I just have never gotten to that point. So for me, it was like, okay, I believe that God is real, and I believe that I am meant to have a relationship with God. How do I chase this down? And Christian music was just the way for me. Like when I listen to Bebo Norman or Stephen Curtis Chapman or DC Talk or like Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, all that stuff um, helped me make sense of Scripture. Like. And tying it to my life in really, really practical ways. Like, you know, I remember Stephen Curtis would always put Bible verses in his liner notes. So I was a liner note junkie. I would just read these liner notes and like then go read the scripture that he had and figure out how he had tied it in with these songs. And so for me, like, honestly, like some of my early theology as far as like not just systematic theology that you learn at Bob Jones, because you learn a lot of knowledge at Bob Jones. How do you then tie that practically to who you are as a human being and what G what God thinks about you as a human being? And I thought, and I think most people who are in fundamentalism, you are taught to think that fundamentalism is Christianity. And so everything else outside of that was just so like foreign. Now I look at it and I'm like, holy cow, like fundamentalism is just like this little speck that no one even really knows about. And yet, but if you're in it, yeah, yeah, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. So, okay. So you're on your own, you're managing a Domino's, you're making good money. Yeah. You've kind of walked away from at least uh, some aspect of your faith as you're trying to figure that out. Sure. <laughs> You've made your own. You've made a record. You're, you're doing an independent music thing as well. At that point, when do yeah. you when do you start 
quote unquote a music career. Sure, yeah. It was while I was working at Domino's. Okay. I was um at Carpenter Cellar, this little place that I had been at, uh, you know, to see Bebo Norman. And the um, normals. And and the normals, <laughs> yeah. And Siler's Bald, Laura Story. Um, you know, I had seen the somebody hung this thing that says, Do you wanna make an album? Uh and do you wanna make an album for free? And I was like, Yes, please. Yeah. And so I went and met this guy, his name is Steve Lorch, who's still a friend to this day. It's it's really cool. Um and so his whole thing was um <laughs> his whole thing was um he he couldn't figure out the financial piece of Christian music. He loved Christian music, but the idea of selling it you know, ministry and money going yeah. together, et cetera. So he was like, I'll make a record for free for you, but you have to agree that you will not sell it for 15 years, but you can give it away. So this is like giving music away long before music. Yeah. Away long was, before they, they didn't ask you, they <laughs> was just invoked. gave it away for you. And yeah. I couldn't put my name on it. So I had to come up with like a title and, um, and so I named my little uh, anonymous thing Berg because Jim Berg was the guy who kicked me out of Bob Jones, and I called it Berg, and uh, and I and I recorded thirteen songs and it was awful. As as uh, I hear some people's first records and I'm just like, dang it, like you're really good. Like of course you should do this. I you know I, yeah I don't I don't know that those are the. That, <laughs> Anybody's legitimate first records. Yeah. Everybody has to make a horrible first record. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. It's like, yeah, that that's part of how you learn to make a good one. It really was awful. And this was like in a home studio. I don't know if you remember like Roland 1680s. Oh, like, I had the 880. Yeah? Yeah. This guy Which had a was six, a lesser version. <laughs> yeah, it only had eight tracks. And you always had, and you had to sum everything. It oh, was super. It was, but digitally, it was the worst oh, was the of worst. all formats. Oh, yeah. It was the worst. And so I made my album on the 1680 in a V drum kit, no clicks. I mean, it was it was a mess, man. Um, and so we uh, we did that. But strangely enough, I began to build this following around it. It was super weird because it was <laughs> like I was really really bad. But like suddenly I'm selling I'm selling out Carpenter Cellar within a year. Like it was super weird. And part of it was I kind of took that whole like. Bebo Norman sort of thing. And I just told stories and made people laugh and then would sing a few songs. And it just was like one of those things where I think people came for the experience of like hanging out with Chris for two hours, as opposed to, I really like these songs. At least I think, because I still have people from those days who are like, man, that song, my God was the greatest song you've ever written. And it genuinely is a piece of trash. Like, if you listen to it, it is genuinely a piece of trash I had song. a number one say, I'm a Christian radio one-hit wonder with a song that I think is truly atrocious. <laughs> well, dude, like, my biggest yeah. hit at Christian radio, like, I mean, I understand why people love it, but, like, it was dated at the time that it came out. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, exactly. seriously, like, and so, like, uh, but... But it legitimately is one of those things where sometimes I I, I honestly don't. Yeah, but know. it connects with people in in some way. Something it does. about it. There's something genuine too. I think about the lack of polish sometimes when you're starting something that can be really inviting and yeah, endearing. I think so, and I, and so I think that in the beginning, like I began to build this you know this audience. I met my wife because she came to a show, like, you know, you and I saw it. this hot blonde that then I saw at my church, and so I went up and asked her out. And uh, 
and then eight months later we were married and um you know then i made a second record in 2002 and it was genuinely a piece of trash so I spent this, you know, 10, 12 So you grand. got two albums that are pieces of trash <laughs> yes. and a following. Yes. And at what point does American Idol happen? In 2002 and 2003, I'd won the GMA songwriting contest. Oh, cool. That's where I started my, you know, got my first record deal offer back in 2002, 2003. 2004, I formed this new band called Half Past Forever. We recorded with this guy named Stephen Liwecki, who was... Um, yeah. Yeah, Stephen... Uh, and that was like life changing because that was like the first time I'd ever worked with like a real producer. He's an incredible Stephen, producer. and and back then Stephen was like no one knew who Stephen was. It was before he'd gotten all the stuff that he's been doing lately, and so he really drives you. And as a young musician, for me, it just revolutionized my life because I finally had him like, oh, this is what it means to be good, like for the first time. Um, and then uh, my band released another uh, another couple albums, and then right then right then was American Idol. Okay. So five albums before American Idol. The year before American Idol, my band had done seventy five or eighty shows or something. Yeah. Um, so was it full time for you? Is it a part time no, thing? No. I I mean I was I was a worship pastor at my church part time, and then was working a part time job um, at a call center sort of thing. Um, basically if you call an apartment complex to ask about like rates and stuff, you were actually getting me mm-hmm. in Greenville, South Carolina. So you're calling for like some expensive place in Washington, DC. Yeah. And really you're getting me in Greenville, South Carolina talking yeah. about, you know, uh, that. So American Idol, literally the audition was like this. My friend says, Hey, there's auditions in Birmingham next week. Do you want to go? And I was like, no, why would I do that? Um, and he's like, well, um, it's a lot, it's your last year to try out for American Idol. Cause I was 28 at the time. And how about this? I'll drive you down. I'll pay for the hotel and then we'll just have fun making fun of people. <laughs> so I was like, that actually sounds like it could be fun. So like I take two days off of work, we drive down to Birmingham and we literally just do the whole experience. And it really is. The experience of being in the stadium with 15,000 people who think they're going to make it on American Idol is genuinely awesome. Like, (laughs) it is genuinely (laughs) awesome. And, uh, you know, just people who cannot sing and people are just, you know, you're in this giant stadium. So people are using the hallways for reverb and they're just like singing their brains out Mm -hmm. all day long. And then they get to the audition and they can't sing and they wonder why they don't make it. And, uh, but it genuinely was fun. And then I made it through the first round. Like I ended up going, um, how many people go through that first round? Oh, we'll bottleneck. I don't want to take forever on this, but it is fascinating. Yeah, it is. It uh, like, um, I, so out of 15, I think there was like 14, five at Birmingham and mm-hmm. I think maybe 150 people make it through. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and it's the really good and the really bad. Yeah. So you see like these really good people that don't make it through and because they're really, I mean, cause in that initial audition, you walk up, you line up to, so they got like, I think there's 14 or 15 tables spread out across the whole floor of the stadium and you walk up in groups and they put you in front of the table and they then uh, have you in groups of six and you walk as a group, you know, up, up, up. And then finally you get up and then they just literally point to you one, two, three, four, five, six. And you sing, sometimes you get three seconds, sometimes you get 20 seconds of a song. 
And then if they feel, feel like you're good enough, they might ask you to sing a little bit more. And so they're like, uh, you know, one, and I was three, they're like one, horrible, two, uh, pretty good, three, I sing an original song, which is a no-no, apparently. I didn't know that. <laughs> and so I sing an original song. That dude got kicked out of Bob Jones. <laughs> He's a rebel. <laughs> I sing an original song. And then it's like, she lets me get through like 30 seconds of it, which was way longer than anybody else. I was like, oh, this this might be good. She puts me through, but she pulls me aside, which she, I had not seen anybody get pulled aside by the producer. She's like, hey, you're really good, but I need you to, number one, I need you to find a song that's just going to showcase like the meat of your voice. So then, you know, you go through and you have to sign all the release forms and all this kind of stuff. And Finally, you come out, and I had to come back four weeks later to come and do the executive producer rounds. So a lot of the bad auditions that you – have you ever watched like the, the really yeah, bad auditions? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. The really bad auditions, but then it looks like the reactions aren't coming from the same – like it looks <laughs> like the judges are reacting. Like It's just like canned reactions that they see like Simon yeah. doing the weird faces – it's legitimately because Nigel round, you're doing it on a set that looks exactly like the real set. Gotcha. And then they can then cut in to make it look like they were singing for the judges when they weren't, if they're really horrible, but they don't want to waste any more time with them. And so I come in, that's nerve wracking, sing for Nigel, I sing Kiss from a Rose this time by Seal, awesome. and I sing it, and he goes, ah, it was okay, uh, you know, but I'll put you through. Um, I sing for Ken. Ken puts me through. Ken Warwick is the exact one of the executive producers. He puts me through. So now I'm through to the judges. Then I go sing for the judges. Well, then I had to come back two weeks later for the judges. So it's all like I'm driving to Birmingham at this point, and about like right in the middle of this, my band starts getting heat from a major label on the mainstream side. Hmm. And those do not cross pollinate. Like you cannot. That's walk what down. I thought. Can you? That's what I thought. Yeah, you can't you can't cross pollinate in the sense that once you sign the American Idol contract, until if you don't win, then or if you don't sign to the American Idol contract, then they have you tied up until the end of the tour. So basically, Got between it. the time that you go on TV till the time that the tour starts, there's a tour with like the top, correct top ten, whoever, yeah, okay, top ten that happens a couple months after the show, right? Yeah, so the show ends in uh, May or it ended in May, and then in June we went into uh, rehearsals, and mid June we went out on this gotcha. tour. We did uh, sixty shows in eighty five days. I mean, it was insane. Oh. All all arenas. It was awesome and amazing and uh, crazy all at once. Um, so yeah, so I'm trying to figure out, do I want to do this major label th thing? Literally the day that I made it through to Hollywood, I got a phone call from Universal that was saying, we want to do this deal for real. And so I'm like, what do I do? And so like, I ended up talking to the A&R guy and I'm just like, look, man, I just tried out for American Idol. It was kind of a fluke. I didn't mean for this to happen, but you know, I made it through to Hollywood. What should I do? Should I just not do it? And he's like, no, dude, do it. He was like, it's free marketing. He's like, so yeah, I went. The best case scenario for him is that you get kicked out. Early. Yeah, but enough that you get some heat. 
that was yeah. kind of the point. Yeah. Like, so, uh, so I went on the American Idol show. If you look back at like all of my interviews around the American Idol show, like my people magazine interview, like they do like the people back then American Idol was such a big show that, you know, all that we, every year they did like people magazine did a whole American Idol edition. Oh really? You know? Okay. So like my interview for people magazine is literally me talking about my band half past forever and how you can go to half past forever.com and <laughs> oh <my laughs> like, like all this stuff about half past forever. And like, we ended up selling like 40,000 records on oh, Amazon yeah. like, <laughs> during my time go. on American Idol. Like it was, it was pretty insane. Way to and, work it. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. And so we, um, we just we just did this thing where like where we were you know my whole goal on American Idol was to do the band thing afterwards. Then I get off of American Idol and I go back and Universal's like, you know, uh, you know, we're not really sure that we want the band anymore. Like we, Chris Sia seems like it has the the heat as the industry the likes heat. to call it the heat, and I'm like, no, 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 we got to do the band. You know, because I never saw myself as a solo artist. Like I always, even back when I was, uh, you know, insecurities or whatever, I just didn't, I never thought I was good enough as a solo artist. I always mm. thought of myself as a band guy. I was in a band. I could be surrounded by people who were better than me that made my songs come to life. I liked being the songwriter. I liked being the singer, but I didn't want to be the star. Um, in fact, the record that we made with Stephen Liwecki, like we had originally gone up to Liwecki's place with another guy as the lead singer. I was just the guitar player hmm. who wrote songs, and Liwecki was like, uh, I was like the remember you remember the band down here? Yeah, we were kind of doing that thing where this other guy was the Mark Martell mm -hmm. who sang most of the songs. I was the Jason Germain, kind of two singers, yeah, yeah. I was the Jason Germain who sang fewer songs, and somehow in that record it turned into I became the lead singer of the band because Liwecki picked all of these songs that were mine and he was like I'm not playing politics these are the best songs and Chris is the best singer and I and it and it actually ended up killing that band because he, you know this guy ends up leaving mm. the band and um and so I've just never wanted to be like the star I've just wanted to write songs and let my songs get yeah you know played and um so it put me in this really awkward position where I'm having to like go back to my bandmates and be like, hey, so I don't know that we're going to do a record deal. And I totally understand why, but my band thinks that I have manipulated this to be this way when it actually was the exact opposite of that. Like I have literally fought tooth and nail for it to be half past forever. And, you know, but Daughtry went through the same thing the year before me. Like he went on thinking that it was going to be the band thing afterwards and he ends up having to go with Daughtry, you know. So mm -hmm. we thought about going with Sly, but that seemed kind of stupid. And I wanted to be Switchfoot and Reliant K. Like, that's what I wanted Half Past Forever to be was I wanted to be a Christian band that was singing about Jesus, but in ways that were accessible to someone who doesn't who doesn't believe in Jesus. And, um, and I just couldn't figure out how to sing and write those songs as a solo artist. It just – everything I did was with the band ethos. Like, that was, like, the whole point of it. Yeah. So if I'm not going to do that, then how do I make a record as a solo artist? About that time, like several mainstream companies offered me deals, and um, and I just really felt like I was supposed to do Christian music. I don't know why. I just, you know, like I said earlier, like Christian music was how I made sense of yeah. the world for a long time. And so I signed with this little company called Brash Music. Their biggest artist was Aaron Schust and Gunger at the time. And... Um, and so I put out this first record, and 
um, and did relatively well with it. Uh, and that was a super fun experience. I got to work with Brown Bannister as my producer. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, and that was super cool. And then Liwecki, uh, got to co-produce with, with Bannister for three songs. And then Will Owsley did three songs. I don't wow. know if you remember Will. Yeah. Um, like that was an experience in and of itself. Just working. Will is one of the most genius, genius. guys. I mean, obviously troubled, but you know, just incredibly out there. Like I, I grew more of my musicianship hanging out with Will Owsley than, just about anybody else in the world. One of the greatest guitar players I've ever been around. And the whole deal with Brash is they were a mainstream company. And so they'd originally said, we're going to go Christian first, but then we're going to go hard in the summer. We had a couple of what we felt like were mainstream rock singles. And we're going to go hard after mainstream radio in the summer. But then Christian, I had this song called Empty Me that ended up just being on the radio forever. Like it was one of those songs that it was a slow burn. It took a long time to build up to, and it came summertime, and we were still like I think we were in the top ten for like forty eight weeks or something with that song, and they just kept saying no, we can't go to mainstream radio until this empty me thing dies. We tried to like force a second single at radio, but everybody's like we're still playing empty me and heavy, you know, and so it ended up empty me was like the greatest thing for my career, and it also was the worst thing for my career because it just lasted forever, and no one wanted to hear anything else except from me except for the song empty me. And, uh, and so it was kind of this weird transition. I'm out on the road just killing myself. I was gone that first year. I did a radio tour where I did uh, 60 radio stations in like 40 days. Like or I just went and went for it. And then I did like um, – I think I did 180 shows that first year, dude. It was – And were you married at the time? I was married, yeah. I'd been married for five years at that point. Any kids? Uh, no kids yet. Um, so then as I'm making the second record – um, I had moved up to Word. Mark Bright had gone, mm -hmm. was the guy at Word. Mark had kind of come and just been like, I want you. He bought out my deal at Brash, brought me over to Word. Basically said, here's X amount of dollars. Go make a record. I believe in you. It was awesome. You know, and it's it is just me in a studio, like, creating. I spent eight months on, a, on that record. Like, you know. Like, it was like the last year you could do that. <laughs> Seriously, it really was. And um and so then like two weeks before my first single went to radio, Mark got fired. Um, you know, I think Mark had kind of forced me down a lot of people's like he was he believed in me, he bought into me, he bought fully into the Chris Sly artist experience. And um and so I didn't have to kowtow to anybody else. I had Mark Bright, you know, and mm -hmm. so I did a horrible job, I I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I wasn't. I don't think that I was mean to anybody or like rude to anybody. I just, you know, the typical way that I think a label deal should work is you have people in teamwork together that are trying to make the best product that you possibly can to take it to the market in the best way that you possibly can. And I basically was like, my version of good is what's going to be good for this record, and I don't care what anybody says because Mark, Mark likes it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I look back at that and I just go, man, I wish I'd had the emotional intelligence to know that even though I didn't have to have it, that it was good to have, you know, <laughs> like, so when, when Mark left, um, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't the end, but it felt like, man, am I going to be able to do the same thing? Yeah. If you don't have a champion in those systems, it, it's, it, it's, they're hard to navigate. Yeah. It can, it can get hard yeah. to navigate. Especially if you haven't built 
Yeah, that exactly. Where, where that you were, yeah, a part of the whole team. I I look back at that time period, and um, what people don't tell you is that as a solo artist, legitimately, it is rigged to make you into a narcissist. I don't think that I would. I think I have probably had some tendencies before, but being in a band, you have to like. You have to you have to work the dynamics to be yeah. in a band. It's like being married. Somebody sees your dirty laundry. Yes, like you have to you have to be able to ask forgiveness. You have to be able to say I'm sorry. Uh, it's, uh, Louis C.K. Uh, rest in peace. Um, <laughs> Louis C.K. has this bit where he's talking about you know he's like if somebody says that you're a jerk, you don't get to say no, I'm not. Like <laughs> yeah, it's so true. <laughs> Oh, it's so, so true. Like that's a that's a conversation you an argument you rarely win. Yeah, like you don't get to tell someone else that you're not being a jerk to them because if they feel like you're being a jerk, you're being a jerk. Oh but and, but I didn't have any of that. Like you know, and so you're you build this world around you where there's so many barriers between outside human connection, and 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 in reality, like unagended connection. Is the only uh, is the only cure for addiction, and so if you have an addiction to self, like I certainly did, then I needed real human connection, but I got zero of it. Mm. Nothing was without agenda. When my manager came to me, he's one of my. When you best mean unagended connection, <sighs> tell me about that. What I mean by that is when when we are in agenda, like um, not to go to psychotherapy, yeah, ease, but like. When we go into an agenda space where we are trying to get someone – when we're trying to navigate someone to do what we want them to be, manipulation is a is a dirty word that I would say. I think that typically when you say the word manipulation, then it that feels like a, a more harsh word than needs to be used. The way I ought to put it is agenda. But in this we, conversation, I'm trying to accomplish a goal. Yes. I'm trying to accomplish a goal. What happens in agenda space is that, number one, you are not available. If I'm trying to convince my wife to do the thing that I want her to do, the reason why it never works is because when I go into agenda space, I am no longer available for human connection, emotional connection. It's impossible to be in emotional connection. From a brain science level, it's impossible to be in human connection when you are trying to get someone to do something for you or you're trying mm. to move someone to where you want them to be. Anytime you go to agenda, you are cutting off emotional connection. And vice versa, the person on the other side, unless they are wholly regulated and able to recognize that agenda is happening and they are going to not let themselves shut off, the natural response of the human body when they when someone meets you with agenda is to automatically put walls up. And so then the person on the other side is not available for emotional connection. And so for my five years as a major label artist, I think that outside of family members, I probably had zero conversations that were not agenda driven, either for yeah. me trying to wow. get someone to do what I wanted them to do or someone trying to get me to do what they wanted me to do. So we wonder why these artists or movie stars or people who are like, I was a no one, like legitimately I was a no one at my most famous. I was, uh, I was a nobody. Think about what it must have been like to be Michael Jackson where everyone, every connection in your life wants something from you and is trying to get you to do something. Every single person in the world wanted something from Michael Jackson. It's no wonder these people go crazy. Like it's legitimately no reason. Yeah, I yeah had, artists are typically crazy to start 
to start with. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I had an addiction to self. I had an addiction, other addictions that I was struggling with. And so I'm living in this world in which what I need is unagended connection. And I got zero of it because of the reality of how this world worked. Mm. Um, and, and again, that's not saying, because I look at Stephen Curtis and I look at Michael W. Smith, and I look at some of these guys who've been doing it for years. They obviously figured out how to how to work around that and find people in their lives that they could be challenged by, you know, typically it was like a pastor. Well, I didn't really have a pastor. I was on the road with Stephen for a couple of years. I mean, he is very intentional about his people. He's got some people. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Al Andrews, who used to be out on the road with, um, with Stephen, Al was a guy that, um, uh, I basically came to this crisis of self where um, my wife had ju- my wife had just gotten pregnant with our first kid. I'm in the process of making this record that ends up being kind of my, you know, a little bit of my uh, what's the record that for uh, um, for Wilson uh, the Be- oh Beach the Boy- pet sounds yeah it was it was it was my pet sounds where I literally was going crazy while making this record you know the record that Mark lets me make and because I, in my mind. It has to be the greatest and best record that anybody has ever made in the history of music. Like that's that's a pressure that I put on myself. So we got a few bases to cover. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so I'm just like, okay, like I go in with Al and I'm talking, and he basically is is telling me, you're a narcissist, you're a jerk, you need to love your wife better, you need to love people better, and my I remember like three sessions in, I told Mitch, my manager, I was like. I'm not going back to say that guy. He's like, just, he's, you he's know. He's calling me names. <laughs> but in reality, like, you know, it was like, I, I needed to hear these things about myself. And it started me on this amazing, amazingly beautiful journey where I remember uh, right before the anatomy. So the, the second album was called The Anatomy of Broken. And, um, and as I, we were getting ready to release that record, and they did the whole thing where they flew a hundred radio people in, you know. And I'm sitting outside of the Rutledge with my manager, and I just start crying because I'm about four or five months into therapy at this point, and my marriage is falling apart. You know, I, I my wife is about to have a kid. This is probably September of 2010, and. And I literally start crying in the car because I'm sick and like I'm getting ready to go sing for all these people that are going to judge whether or not my next record can be successful. And um, and I feel like I'm having those moments of like I feel like I've made this work of genius. But like then in that moment as I'm about to do this, I'm going everything is crap. It's the worst thing I've ever made in my life. I don't want anyone to hear these songs. And, and I'm just like I don't want to do this anymore, man. Like I'm done. And he was like. Super, I mean, Mitch is one, I don't know if you know Mitch White, but like oh, yeah. Mitch, one of the greatest human beings ever. And someone who now is, is I would consider one of my closest friends. So we moved mm-hmm. beyond the manager relationship into something really special. And I'm like, he's like, dude, he's like, I totally feel you. And he kind of talks to the feeling for a minute. And then he goes, but just so you know, you cannot tell one person in that room what you just told me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a manager. Yeah. And I so, hear you. I hear you. No one else will hear this, but I hear you. Yeah. And so I go in and I play this thing, and it was kind of that in-between phase where I was not a new artist that wasn't getting paid, but I wasn't big enough that I could 
afford to take my wife to quit her job where she had insurance for us. Yeah. You know, and then for us to take the family out on the road. So I was like, either make this big or just make it obvious that I'm supposed to go away. And we just had like all of these, you know, what most people would probably call coincidences that to me were just confirmation of I am supposed to do something else. Um, mm. I'm supposed to do something else to save my marriage. I'm supposed to do something else to save me from myself. Um, I'm supposed to do something because I legitimately don't know that I know how to live the fruit of the spirit. And how do I, how do I do that? I want to learn how to do that because I feel like that's one of the things that I probably, the fruit of the spirit felt legalistic to me coming from my background. That's part of the baggage was the fruit of the spirit. When you give me a list of things that I have to do, I'm going to go, Hey, forget you, buddy. You know, I'm not doing that. Paul seemed like a legalist to me, like through most of his, you know, don't do this, do this throughout the whole New Testament. I ignored Paul for years. I loved what Jesus had to say, you know, but I ignored Paul for years. We're not even talking about Timothy. Yeah. Yeah. But so I'm living in this, I'm living in this place of just, you know, I know that I am not living how I'm supposed to live and I want to do that. And I legitimately think that there was no way, you know, Word at the time wanted to make a third record. Um, I don't really know why, but they wanted to make a third record. And um, and so I just went in and I said, you know, I'll work with whatever producer you want me to work with. I think they wanted me to work with Ed. And so I met with Ed a couple of times and we hit it off famously. That dude is the best. It's great. Um, and, um, you know, my whole dream of working with Ed was finally going to come true, you know, and um, and I was kind of humbling myself because I'd made this like eighty thousand dollar, you know, record that no one cared about and no one bought, and it was my work of genius. It was my pet sounds that, you know, no one ever heard, <laughs> you know, and um, and so like uh, I'm kind of like in this place where I'm like humbling myself to go like, okay, maybe I'm not a good producer. Maybe I just need to work with, you know, these other guys that are going to, so I can learn more and all this kind of stuff. And then it just came, I was like, I'm going to take a job at a church and I'm just going to be home as much as I can. So I went into Word and I was like, hey, I understand this likely changes things drastically, but I really feel like I got this job offer from a church. I think I'm going to take it. And uh, they are going to let me tour for X amount of weeks a year. So I could do that, but I probably am not going to do much more than that. And they were super nice. I mean, just super awesome. Oh, that's good it. to hear. Like, um, but ultimately they came to the decision that it probably was best that we parted ways. Yeah. And uh, and so we just came to this place where I left. I went to Colorado, and it was like this total revolution, man, for me. Of like, I legitimately went from playing with four of the best musicians I'd, that I've ever played with to playing with four of the worst musicians that I've ever played with. Um, I had this drummer that his fills, he didn't, he had two fills. One of them was four and a half beats that he thought was four. And another one that was five beats that he thought was four. So he had the digga, 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 And you would just have to like wait for the, wait for the one to happen. This guy's either like on some sting level that we're not catching up with or he can't count. Yeah. And so we couldn't play with a click. So it was just as like when you're actually having to like, it was like the first time where I went, okay, excellence probably is not going to be a reality right now. Mm -hmm. Truthfully, like I can bring better excellence than is here, 
But excellence is not going to be a reality, at least my version of excellence. So how do I love these people and grow a team? And suddenly the narcissism, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that it went away, but it certainly began to be seen through a different lens, like where I'm caring for people. You know, you're building a small group of musicians that you're pastoring and leading and trying to show Jesus to and, you know, going through the hard times when, you know, their wife leaves them and mm. going through the hard times when it's it's just a, it's just a, it, it's impossible, I think, to live in that space pastoring and not... Um, get out of yourself at least a little bit. Um, and I still had a long way to go. I think that the last three and a half years of, um, specifically of therapy has helped me understand more of who I am, more of who I am to God. What's funny is I've learned more about Jesus through a non-Christian therapist and about grace and love from a non-Christian therapist than I have in almost 35, 40 years in the church. Mm. Um, I feel like I've learned to understand more of what scripture is talking about when it talks about grace and what the fruit of the spirit, actually living the fruit of the spirit looks like um, because of therapy and coming to understand more of who I was, how I'm seen. You know, this understanding, I think, you know, when you talk about being crucified with Christ, I think for a long time, I couldn't quite wrap my head around what that meant. But really what it's saying is, if you look at the context of the scripture, is um, he's basically saying, Paul is basically saying that if you are still seeing yourself as crucified, like that you are the one who's, that is still being seen, then you're, then Jesus being crucified was for nothing. Like you're crucified with Christ is not you who lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in you. So when God looks at us, he's not seeing the screw-ups. He's not seeing the failures. If you believe that because you were born with a sin nature, then that makes you um, fundamentally a jerk, then likely, no matter how much you believe that Jesus saved you, likely there are going to be places in your life where you act out being a jerk because you fundamentally you believe that you are a jerk. If you come to the understanding and you can see yourself as I think God sees us, which is he sees us as worthy of love. He sees us as um, as worthy of honor or worthy of grace. Um, he sees us as he sees his son now. It revolutionizes how you see yourself and how you see yourself typically is going to revolution. If you can revolutionize how you see yourself is going to revolutionize how you act. Um, because typically... Um, whatever that deepest thing that we believe about ourselves, that's the place that we act when we're act out of, when we're stressed, when we're, um, when we're, when we feel like we're failing, when we feel like that things aren't going the way that we want them to be. What is beautiful is self-compassion. It's being able to come to the place where you go as Jesus is compassionate towards me and my failures, I can be compassionate towards me and my failures in the same way that I would be compassionate towards my child when she fails, when she feels like she's messed up. I I can't remember a time where I have desired to make my child feel bad about her failures, and yet I do it to myself constantly. Hmm. I beat the crap out of myself to try to make sure I think that there's something in my head that if I beat myself up over it, that it will make this dirty thing down deep inside of me somehow cleaner. And it never does. It never worked. 
And so now I live in this place where I go, I, I want to see more consistently how God sees me. And I want that to revolutionize how I act. Um, you know, I remember at one point a mentor of mine asking me, he's like, Chris, do you want to be right or do you want to be good? Because I feel like right now the two are mutually exclusive. Hmm. And I was like, well, I want to be right because it's truth, man. Like banging my fist on the table. And, and he goes, well, then, you know, and you wonder why people around you are turned off by that. And I had this revelation of just like, well, do I want to be, do I want to be love or do I want to be right? And sometimes they're the same thing. I think that if you do it well, if you're good, that you can be right and good at the same time. <laughs> but you have to be a good person. <laughs> yeah. Like you legitimately have to be willing to like come to that place of going like, hey, so um, th- your feelings in this moment are more important. In my marriage, I would say that as a husband, I was a horrible husband for the first, you know, I've been married for almost 15 years. The first... 13 years because I lived in a place where I had to be right. I had to be right because to me, it all came down to, I thought of myself as a logical person. I worked through everything logically. I, I wanted it to be logically. This is how the world makes sense is you go this step, this step, this step, this step, step, and it leads you to the truth. But we all know that in reality, the way that a normal everyday reaction goes is my wife has a feeling that she feels like I am not treating her well. Now, I can go through a list of logical reasons of how I'm actually treating her well, but her felt need is not being met and for some reason, whatever that is. So if I deal with the logic of it, I'm actually not dealing with the problem. I'm just asking her to stuff down what she's feeling. And so – we all do this in many ways. To be right is to go, well, actually, I took out the trash this morning. I took the kids to school when I did when you when you were running behind. I did this, I did that, I did that. See, I'm actually treating you well. But her felt sense is that I'm not treating her well, maybe because I have some, you know, I'm having a reaction to the things that I had to do extra for her for whatever reason. Even though logically I can prove that I treated her very well today, her felt sense is what is her reality. And so one of the greatest lessons that I can ever learn and one of the lessons that I have to learn daily still is coming to that realization of like, uh, I would rather be good than be right. Mm. Because my whole focus was how do I be respected? And I thought if I could just get people to respect my what I do, my excellence, that's going to be my legacy. When in reality, the legacy is relationship all along. And it always was. I just missed it. I love that. Man, thanks so much, Chris. Yes, thank you for having me on, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun. You know, sometimes I walk into these conversations thinking I know who I'm going to talk to, and uh, sometimes I am surprised. They are different than I anticipate uh, and in wonderful ways, and this was one of those. I really love this, and I hope you guys got something out of it. I did. Dude has a lot to say, and I'm so glad that he uh, came over and shared some of that with us. So thank you, Chris. Again, he has a new album out uh, called A Modern Liturgy, and you can find that at chrissly.org. It's great. You should check it out. And uh, a big thanks to our sponsors again, which you need to visit, globalcounselingnetwork.com and Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, nifw.org. These are good, good things. Please don't miss this. And you are good people for listening to this podcast. Uh, AndrewOsinga.com and EverybodyPivots.com for info about my music and me. Uh, singles from my new album, 
The Painted Desert are going to start coming out online the next couple weeks, uh, getting ready for its October release. I know a lot of you have it from the pre-order campaign, but if you haven't, uh, it's about out, and I'm excited uh, for that. So more info on hopefully a release show and things coming up soon. But uh, yeah, andreosinga.com. And that's it for us today. Hope you've enjoyed this. I have. You'll hear from me again next week. In the meantime, go do something awesome. <laughs>